Dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your continued presence here this morning. We ask you to join us now in a special way as I preach. We trust that you are here with us. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as most of you who've been coming to our church for any length of time will know, it's our practice to select two readings uh, for each worship service. And as you probably noticed, we didn't do any sort of traditional formal readings this morning, although we did just watch our lovely children tell us the birth narrative of Jesus Christ directly from the Gospel of Luke. And that totally counts as reading from the Bible. Um, our pageant narration, like I said, is basically taken directly from Scripture. But I thought I'd go ahead and choose two other kid-themed readings this morning uh, from which to preach. Uh, now, they're not from the Bible, but don't worry, we're going to just use them as illustrations. We'll have plenty of biblical text in the sermon this morning. But as our first reading, I chose what must be the second most popular Christmas story of all time after the actual birth narrative of Jesus Christ, which is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And to pair with it, and to be honest, to correct Dr. Seuss's understanding of the meaning of Christmas, I've chosen a less well-known text, Barbara Robinson's 1971 novel, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Now, to be fair to Robinson, she had not seen our pageant when she titled her book. Her story, therefore, must be at best the second best Christmas pageant ever. But I wanted to do a little comparison this morning because one of these stories the one about the Grinch, misunderstands in the end what the Christmas story, the story that we've just witnessed in our pageant, is really all about. Now, you know this story very well. I'm sure the Grinch, who hates Christmas, tries to ruin it for the Whos, who live down in Whoville. Now, toward the end of the story, he has snuck into Whoville in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve, he has stolen every present, every bit of food, everything. And he finally gets to the pinnacle of Mount Crumpet, just as the Who's are starting to wake up, and he cocks his ear so that he can hear the weeping and gnashing of teeth that he's sure will come from below when the Who's discover what he's done. But of course, as we know the story, he doesn't hear that, does he? No weeping, no gnashing of teeth. No, instead he hears singing. And then to his surprise, the spirit of Christmas overcomes him and grows his heart two sizes, which spurs him on to return all the gifts, to celebrate Christmas with the Who's, even going so far as to carve the roast beast. And there we have, laid out clear as day, the world's version of what the good news of Christmas might be. Certainly the world's conception of what religion might be for. Religion, at its best, grows a person's shrunken heart and encourages him to do the good things that they weren't doing before. Watch any Hallmark Christmas movie. This is what they're all about. Patrick Dempsey starts out as a Grinch, but ends up as a Who. And the people who like Jesus, like we do, can pretty easily slip him right into that equation, can't they? Grinch is the sinner, the person who does bad things. 
And the who's are the saints, the people who do good things. And the spirit of Christmas is the change agent. That's where Jesus goes. And he's the spirit of Christmas, causing shrunken hearts to grow. If you're a Grinch, Jesus can come in, expand your heart, and turn you into a who. That's every religion's aim, changing a Grinch into a who. Turning people from vice to virtue, from sin to righteousness. That's every religion, I should say, except Christianity. Because that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus, as the sort of Susian spirit of Christmas, can be nothing more than an inspiration to us. All that Jesus can do, indeed, all he's even capable of doing, is inspiring a person who does bad things to do good things a little more often. And of course, mere inspiration doesn't even necessarily do that. You all know plenty of people in your lives who just stay Grinches. Our good news, our actual Jesus, is so much better than an encouraging spirit of Christmas. He is Savior of the world. So now, the best Christmas pageant ever. Barbara Robinson's story is about a little church in a little town that puts on an annual Christmas pageant. One year, though, the pageant is taken over by six misfit siblings who live in the town, the the Herdman children. They are violent, vulgar, dirty, and they certainly don't know anything about the Christmas story. So during rehearsals for the pageant, which they're only there because they heard there were going to be snacks, They ask all kinds of ignorant questions, like, why would Herod want to kill Jesus? How come Mary has to have a baby in a barn? And these questions force the church members to hear the Christmas story afresh, to see it with fresh eyes. But, and here's where the story departs from how the Grinch stole Christmas, the Herdmans in Robinson's story, are not depicted as going from vice to virtue, from Grinch to who. They're shown, in fact, as going from unbelieving to believing. The setup is there, though, right? You're expecting it, because that's how all the Hallmark Christmas movies go. The setup is just what we expect. In fact, in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, the book is actually titled The Worst Kids in the World. So we're totally set up to have some final chapter where the Herdmans have been changed by the Christmas spirit into model citizens, rebuilding the shed they burned down in chapter one, or apologizing for all the thieving and bullying they've done, etc. But that's not what happens. The story ends with Imogene Herdman playing Mary in the pageant holding the baby Jesus and weeping at the power of the story. Robinson doesn't say so explicitly, but the good news shines through. This little girl and her family have heard now and understood the story of the Son of God come to earth 
to redeem a sinful people. So I have a pointed question for you this morning, one that you probably don't hear very often at Christmas. What's your problem? What's the matter with you? Is your heart two sizes too small? No. Jeremiah says in chapter 17 that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15 that what comes out of the mouth, those terrible things you find coming out of your mouth, proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart, he says, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. That's what the Bible says about your heart. Not that it's too small, but that it's dead, faithless, beyond healing. That's your problem. That's what's wrong with you. But there is good news. And it's better news than what the Grinch gets. We need so much more than a larger heart. We need a new one. We need the new heart that Jesus gave Imogene Herdman. So here's Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. I, says the Lord, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the good news that those angels proclaimed to the shepherds that night. Not that if they followed that star, they'd meet a baby who would grow their hearts two sizes. Not that they could move from vice to virtue. No, they were promised a savior. And everything that he brought with him, resurrection, a new heart, a new life. And so, holding the baby Jesus and all he will accomplish for us, we, with Imogene Herdman, weep with joy. Now, as the kids sang, when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, he said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Joy that will be for all people. You'll be singing it the rest of the day. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Fifty years later, after Jesus Christ the Lord accomplished his mission on earth, a man who was intimately familiar with that saving work of Jesus, Paul of Tarsus, would write, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's from Paul's letter to the Galatians. You hear the profundity of that language, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's saying, I was dead. That was my problem. But now in Christ, I have been made alive. This 
is what Jesus came to accomplish. The Christian paradigm is not vice to virtue or grinch to who, but unbelieving to believing, from death to new life. This is the language of the Bible, language that even Dr. Seuss just cannot match, and at which even the best Christmas pageant ever can only hint. It is language, though, that our Christmas pageant, the actual best Christmas pageant ever, gets exactly right by quoting from Luke's gospel. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you, which is Christ the Lord. And the reason we need that Savior, here's Paul again, this time in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is what Jesus has accomplished for you. This is what our Christmas story is about. And this is why we weep with joy. Our story is not about an enlarged heart, but a new life. Jesus was born so that you might be born anew. He lived a perfect life so that he could give it to you. And on the cross, that work was accomplished. It's at Christmas that that work, that finished work, was begun. Thanks be to God. Amen.